John chapter 16, 16 through 24. And your bulletins, there's three points in the back. I didn't get to the third one, so ultimately today will be the third point of this sermon. <clears throat> John 16, let me do read the text again, but we'll be in the last part of this text this morning. John 16 and beginning in verse 16. A little while and you will see me no longer. Again, a little while and you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you were asking yourselves and what I meant what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your joy will be will turn in your sorrow will turn into joy. Verse twenty one. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a man has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice. It's a great phrase here. You need this every day. No one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Amen, amen. I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive. Here's the purpose, that your joy may be full talked about a short period of time before the Lord comes or before you die. Either way, it's short, very short. Then we dealt with this separation problem. They're being separated from Christ. He's going to be gone. He's going to return. He's going to ascend in the book of Acts. But the things are going to be better because they're going to have the Holy Spirit. It's going to be more advantageous for me to depart Because now the Holy Spirit will indwell you, He'll be with you, guide you, protect you, illuminate, understand, all of those things. The Holy Spirit will seal you, possess you until Christ returns. So just as a reminder, we're not living in inferior days, we're living in a more advantageous age. We're living in the age of the Holy Spirit, living within us, guiding us into all truth. Now, I do want to give you a definition for joy. After the sermon's over, I may have another definition, but let's have one to start with. So I'm going to define joy this way, and then we'll work with the message we have left. Joy is the eternal reality of peace with God through the perfect work of Jesus Christ. Joy is the eternal reality of peace with God through the perfect work of Jesus Christ, His Son. 
And I hope you hear something in that definition, that no matter what happens in your life today, tomorrow, for the rest of the time you have on earth, that definition never changes. It is an eternal reality that I have peace with God. That's the greatest issue. This this issue between God and man being in opposition. God being angry with the wicked every day. Man being in enmity with God. This is the greatest issue. But being in peace with God, where there's no condemnation, that's reality. Whether there be a school shooting, whether there be the lack of electricity in the middle of the summer, whether there be a rebellious child, whether your daughter has no brains at all and moves to Alaska and takes the grandkids with her, whatever the situation, the eternal reality is this. I have peace with God. And I have peace with God because of the perfect work of His Son, Jesus Christ. That needs to be preached to my heart every day. That's my joy, that when this thing's done, I'll be with Him. That's the joy. Now, let's follow that up with a bad story. You may not know Philip Doddridge. Some of you use uh, Valley of Vision prayer book, and you read a prayer out of there each day. I highly recommend it. I don't do it every day, but I do it quite often. The prayers are Puritan in nature, and they're very good. And if you look in the beginning of that book, it will give a list of contributors. There'll be a list of names of who they got these prayers from. In that list, you'll find Philip Doddridge. He's one of the names in that list. But let me tell you a little bit about Philip this morning as we begin this sermon. Philip Doddridge was born in London, the last of 20 children. His mom had 20 babies. 19 of those babies died at birth. So 19 siblings have died, and then Daniel is born. When he's born, she believes that he's still born as well, and they set him to the side, and he cried out. When he cried out, his mother says, I commit to raise this child in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Now, his dad... uh, Daniel was a dealer in oils and pickles. Philip's mother, Elizabeth, considered to have been the greatest influence on him, was the orphan daughter of Reverend John Bowman, 1675. She had, after she gave birth to these 19 children, then Philip comes along and cries out. She commits to raise him for the Lord. Before Philip could read, his mother began to teach him the history of the Old and New Testament from blue Dutch chimney tiles on the chimney place of their sitting room. There's these tiles with these pictures of Old Testament scenes, and so she would use those to teach him the truth of the Old and New Testament. Well, his mother died the 12th of April, 1711. Philip was eight years old. Four years later, his father died the 17th of July, 1715. He had a guardian by the name of Downs who moved him to another private school at St. Albans where he was much influenced by a man by the name of Samuel Clark. This guy Downs that became his guardian squandered the entirety of his inheritance 
So by that age of 13, Philip was orphaned and destitute and had nothing left. And he ran off and just left him, 13 years old, orphaned, no funds to care for himself. Fast forward a little bit in life, the 22nd of December, 1730, he married a lady by the name of Mercy. After that, I'm not sure what happened with her, but after that, he married Elizabeth. They had nine children. The first one they named Elizabeth. She died right before her fifth birthday. She was buried under the platform of the Doddridge Chapel of Northampton. Four children survived to adulthood. Thus, five of his children died, 19 siblings dead, and five of his own children dead. Philip died at the age of 48, October the 26th, 1751. Keep that story in mind. Now, if you look at your text in John chapter 16, a satisfaction is promised. I hope that somebody here would receive this word today. It's a sad tragedy to the gospel to have prune-faced, bitter Baptist. It's a sad testimony to the gospel to have prune-faced, bitter Baptist. You say, why would you say such a statement? Because the Lord of glory said that he spoke what he spoke with this purpose, that your joy would be 10%. That doesn't even make sense. Behind the purpose of the words of Christ is that you, as an individual believer, would have fullness of joy. And of all the people on the face of the earth, if you want to find someone who has fullness of joy at 5 a.m. on Monday morning, it's the Christian. The same as at 9 o'clock at night, or in the middle of the day, or when a hurricane comes, or a tornado comes, or we're in the middle of a drought, or in the middle of a plague, or locusts eat up the entire farm, and there's no baby food at the supermarket. Look for a Christian because he has fullness of joy fullness of joy. He's not in search of someone else. He's not in search of something else because he's found something that satisfies and it's been guaranteed. Fullness of joy. Verse 22. You see it again there in your text. So also you have sorrow now. And just reminded disciples, they have sorrow. Jesus is departing. That's where the sorrow source is coming from. Then there's the contrast, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice. And then we have this wonderful phrase, no one will take your joy from you. Verse 22 gives us the idea of permanent joy. Permanent joy. Post-resurrection joy. Application, we're all post-resurrection. Right? The resurrection has occurred. It's an issue of faith. Crucified, dead, buried, raised. Tomb is empty, 
body didn't decay, ascended to heaven, seated at the right hand of the throne of God, ruling and reigning in all sovereignty over the entire globe. That's the condition of our Savior, post-resurrection. Reality is we have permanent joy. What? Our joy is bound up in Christ. In order for your joy to be depleted, in order for your joy to be negated, in order for your joy to be erased, here's what has to happen. Somebody has to get Christ off the throne. In order for your joy to be diluted and go away, someone has to replace Jesus and nullify his work on Calvary. You say, we can't do that. Exactly. In Espanol, exactamente. It's that way. And that's why our joy cannot be taken. He's telling these disciples, look, the cross is impending. It's right around the corner. I know where I'm going. I'm doing it on purpose. Nobody's taking my life. I'm laying it down freely. This is why I came. You guys don't understand this, but I do, and this is where I'm going. But look, guys, I know you're going to be sad. I know you're going to cry. I know you're going to weep. I know there's going to be anguish that's going to fill your heart. I know the world's going to be happy that I'm gone. But Christ says, don't worry. In the post-resurrection, you will see me, and all of your sorrow will be gone. Any, any, any women here had a, had a baby without an epidural? Don't raise your hand. But it, it, all the pain, I, and I'm not pretending to imagine, I have no idea the pain that's involved in a baby without an epidural. All I know is it's after the process is over and the mother is holding the baby, somehow the pain's gone. Somehow all of that that she just labored through, sweat through, and hurt through, all of a sudden there's a smile, and in her heart there's a fullness of joy. That's the illustration Christ uses to these guys. You're going to weep like crazy, but then you're going to see me. You're going to see me, and you're going to forget all of that that they did to me, and you're going to see me as the victorious one. Church, that's how we see him. By faith, we're looking back to these events and seeing this empty tomb. We're seeing this and we're like, how in the world can we as Christians live in somber sadness and weariness and like a cloud of depression hanging over our head like it can't get any worse? How do you live like that when you have a resurrected king? How do you live in the dumps when your king is on the throne? You say, well, Biden's the president. Excuse me? I think he's under my king. Well, he's doing this, and he's voting this, and he's going to take our guns away. Oh, gosh, I don't even know what I'm going to do. My king's not worried. He's sitting on the throne, and he reigns over the entire universe, and no one is going to dethrone him. Post-resurrection brings us to the last age. Welcome. Here we are. It's the last day. But again, I will see you. Notice in the text, he switches from the expected, you will see me. He switches the phrase to, I will see you. Why does he switch it to, I will see you? Well, at the end of the day, our comfort is in him seeing us. Hey, you think about it. The Apostle Paul says it like this in Galatians chapter 4, verse 9. He says, but now you have come to know God. That sounds good. But then he changes. Or rather, here's the truth, rather to be known by God. 
That's the issue. Does Jesus believe me? Does Jesus see me? Does Jesus have favor upon me? It's not so much my view. It's that he sees and knows me by name. Therein lies my joy. Christ knows me. Here's how we operate. We go to a sporting event and we say, I know so-and-so, whoever the celebrity is in the event. We go to this thing and say, I know this singer. I know this person. I know them. And somehow we get some pleasure because we know. But what if you went to your goofy football game where they're chasing the ball of air around and doing all whatever, or you go to the golf game, people mindlessly walk around a golf course watching a little white ball go in a hole. I don't know. And so you say, I know this golfer. How much more refreshing would it be if in the middle of the TV time, he's about to tee off, he stops, he goes, hey, I know Jack. Jack, how you doing? Boy, that would get somebody's attention right there. This is what's going on. It's not like so much I know Jesus, but the king of the universe says, I know you. I see you. I created you. I designed you. I formed you unto my image. You're my child. I'm, I'm your savior. What a blessed, joyful thought. He says, and your heart will rejoice. Your heart will rejoice. To be in a state of happiness, a state of well-being, to rejoice. You remember back here in verse 20, (laughs) at the crucifixion scene, the disciples are weeping and lamenting. They're sorrowful, but but the world was rejoicing. Well, you The world will rejoice. It's temporary. They rejoice for a little while, and then all of a sudden, that world that was there reacts like, what is going on? What do you mean there's no body in the tomb? What do you mean that you can't find the body? All of a sudden, the world's in a panic-stricken state because this one we thought was dead is now reportedly alive. And now we have a change, and we see that now the disciples rejoice. But note... Nothing ever happens to stop the rejoicing. If Jesus rises from the dead and then he falls over dead the next day, that was a short-lived rejoicing. But he's alive forevermore. He ascends. He's seated on the throne. All of these types of things. Nothing changes the continued nature of rejoicing. Church, please grasp this in your heart. Stop looking at the stupid TV. Stop taking in all the information of the news. Stop depressing yourself. Stop Googling your body's symptoms and trying to diagnose why you're dying in five minutes. Stop the nonsense. Look unto Christ. Can I not get you to hear that you can look under Christ and that you would rejoice? I don't have to be depressed that I'm dying. I can have joy that I'm going to live. You don't understand Christ defeated death? He defeated it. He's not in the tomb. Yes, you will die. But you won't die forever to be absent from the body. I'm going to be present with the Lord. Oh, what joy fills my heart. Get a hold of that. No one will take your joy from you. We see that at the end of verse 22. No one can take joy. I mentioned this Greek word in the Sunday school class this morning. It can mean cut off. Here it means can't take, can't seize, can't remove. 
Not even by killing, the word implies. You can't take my joy even if you kill me. Even if you tie me up and dump me in the river and drown me, you can't take my joy. You can't do anything in my life to my wife, to my children, to my grandchildren, or in my society. There is nothing that can be done by all of the world and all the demons of hell that can take my joy. It's impossible. Why? Because Jesus is my joy. You remember that old hymn? The joy of the Lord is my strength. All of the joy is bound up in the source of joy. You want to have a misconception of joy? Just keep looking in the mirror and keep watching the news. That's not where joy is derived. Joy is derived in what is reality. The reality is Christ was resurrected. The reality is your sins were were paid for by another. The reality is, when you die, you don't go to hell. The reality is forgiven. The reality is freedom. The reality is one with Christ. The reality is, I have a, I'm a partaker of the divine nature. The reality is, I'm a saint. The reality is, is that all of my sins have been purged by the infinite blood of Christ. This is this where reality is. When I look to those things and I preach those things to myself, joy wells up in my heart. When I wake up in the morning and I look horizontally and I look in the mirror, I'm like, suicide's a good option. Right? Just being honest. I mean, you don't have to look horizontally long and you're like, dude, it's bad. It's like, dude, I don't even want to go to work today. I don't even want to go out there. I sure don't want to go to Walmart, hello. Hadn't been this year yet. Not yet. Still holding out. Horizontalness gets you all off whack of what reality is. These truths are the only truths that are real, that do not change. Joy is a person. It took me a long time to figure that out. Well, joy was an emotion. Hey, don't get confused in this sermon. I'm not trying to be confusing. Do I, am I ever sad? Uh, yeah. Uh, are you ever down? Are you ever tired? Uh, yeah. I'm getting old. Like I'm over halfway to 100. I mean, I have bad days. I have days. Do, do you cry? Yeah, I cry when I can't see my grandkids. I cry when I can't see my son. He has a problem. Yeah, I cry. Does your heart break? Yeah, my heart breaks. When there's people in this church that hear the gospel week after week and they won't repent and they won't believe Christ, I go home and I weep and I'm like, oh God, why won't you save them? Yeah, I have all of those emotions, but none of that erases or nullifies joy. None of it. Joy is a person. A person who defeated death, hell, and the grave. A person who lives forever and gives eternal life to all who believe in him. Thus, our joy is bound up in Christ. Mortal man, politics, situations in the society I live in have no bearing on depleting Christ. Look, the world has as much chance of doing away with Christ as they do of pulling the sun out of the sky or pulling the wetness out of the water. You say, well, that's impossible. Exactly. 
You cannot deplete Christ for who he is. And in him is everything that joy is. You must... People so much... It's all this depression, psychology, psychotropic drugs, and all of our upbringing. Well, you know, my dad left. We had a divorce, and I was lived on the wrong side of the tracks. That's why I am the way I am. You're the way you are because you won't look to Christ. That's why you're the way you are. Don't blame it on your history. Don't blame it on your deadbeat dad. Don't blame it on your no-show-up mama. Don't blame it on the fact that you got fired from McDonald's and you can't get minimum wage. The understanding of why you are is why you are is because you're not looking to Christ. Because when you look to Him and your joy is derived from Him, you'll have the reality of what He has spoken these words for. It's a privileged relationship. Not only is it a permanent joy. It's a privileged relationship. Verse 23. In that day, post-resurrection day, you're not going to ask anything of me. Amen, amen. I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Remember 1 John chapter 2 verse 18. He said, children, it's the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. I remind you again, we are living in the last day. From the day of his resurrection to the day of his return, that segment of history is the last day. It is in this day, the last one, the last day, post-resurrection to the return of Christ, that you and I are to live Enjoy. That's where we are, and that's the day in the age that we live in. Now, this he talks about asking here. You ask nothing of me. You ask of the Father. It's actually two different Greek words, but I don't make much of this. But the first one has to do with seeking information. Every bit of information that they ask for up to this point, they just talk to Christ directly because He's physically before them. That's the relationship. That's why I think they were confused a bit about prayer, and they asked him, would you teach us to pray? Because all of their conversation is with Christ, because he's physically before them, but all of Christ's conversations is with his Father in heaven, and they haven't put these things together yet. They don't have it grasped yet. But in the future, you're going to ask for something, but this whole conversation thing is going to change. You're not going to talk to me physically because I'm not going to be here. You're going to have to ask my Father, and he's in heaven. But you're going to ask him in my name because it's in my name that you have access to the Father. See, look, you don't have to ask the Father in the name of the Pope. That won't help. And you certainly don't have to ask Mary. That's not going to help. You just go directly to the Father yourself because of the name of Christ that he has accomplished all that is necessary for you to have access to the throne of God. It's not going to be information they're going to need. They're going to understand the redemptive work of Jesus. They're going to understand the meaning of the kingdom of God. So they're going to ask the Father in the name of Christ for things they need as they proclaim the gospel and build churches until he returns. So after the resurrection, I hope you understand this. I hope this is not new information for you. After the resurrection, the Spirit of God dwells within the believer. He gives understanding to the mind. He gives illumination to the heart. And, and, and this, the church gets it. Oh, Christ came willingly from heaven. 
He lived a perfect life and satisfied all the law's demands. He substituted in the place of sinners on the cross. He's resurrected from the dead. He ascended to heaven. And in the future, he's going to return and he's going to gather everybody together who repents and believes in him. Oh, now I know the plan. So now I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask the Father to help me to be accomplishing his purpose. So I'm going to ask for help preaching the gospel. I'm going to ask for help to serve the church. I'm going to ask for help to do those good works that he has ordained that I should walk in. And when I ask those things, the Father's going to grant them because I'm doing the work that he has ordained for me to do. I'm not sure if you're getting it yet. If you truly want to know what's happening in the world and where everything is headed, repent and believe in Christ. This is the way that you will come into knowledge of what is truly going on in the world. Here's, it's got to move to the next verse. I'm tempted, but let's move to the next verse, the last verse for this morning. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive. We've seen this before. We saw it back in chapter 14. This ask and you will receive. There's a great connection for joy here. If you miss this part, you're going to be missing something. Now, the Christian now asks the Father for things based upon the finished work of Christ. Now, the promise here in this passage is, is that when you ask, you will receive. That's the promise. You ask, and he'll give it. Right? Are we all on the same page? We're in the last day. We pray to the Father in the name of Jesus, and he gives it. Okay. When we pray for things in harmony with the preaching of the gospel, pray for things in harmony with the building, strengthening of the church, Pray for things that are in harmony with the work of the kingdom of God. Now, I use this illustration. I'm going to use it again. I've already used it in chapter 14. We use it again. It works like this. You go out and you get a job with a builder that's building these houses around here. And you get a job. And he hires you for $5 an hour and you go to work. And he says, okay, the job is to build this house. And he says, anything you need, you ask me and I'll give it to you right? And you say, I need a hammer. Okay, here's a hammer. Oh, thanks. I needed that. Oh, well, I need one of those air guns so I can shoot the nails through the shingles and just do it really fast. Okay, here's one. Here's the air hose. Whatever you need to get the house built and to get it built right, here it is. Oh, I also need a Lamborghini. I also need six weeks off in the Bahamas my first month. Dude, you're not getting it. You know he's saying that if you ask for anything necessary to accomplish the task, that's what he's talking about. It's the same here. If you ask in the name of the Lord Jesus for things that are in line with his will, for the building of the kingdom of God, for the strengthening of the churches, he just keeps giving. Look. You have to make this connection to get the last line. Because if you don't get this connection, you're never going to get the last line. People struggle because the connection here is that you receive, that your joy would be full, is tied with your prayer life and what you receive. 
So I'm praying and receiving, and the purpose of praying and receiving is that my joy would be full. Here's what's happening. People who confess to be Christians aren't praying, and they're not receiving, and they have no joy. There's a connection here. We're always praying horizontally for stuff that we find in the mirror as we look at our own flesh to gratify ourselves, and then we can't figure out at the end of the day why I don't have joy. We don't understand. I thought God wanted me to have fullness of joy. Try this. Get up on Monday and stop looking at yourself. Get up on Monday and say, Lord, I want to be a servant today. Give me a divine opportunity to serve someone else. Lord, help me to be a blessing to my neighbor. Lord, help me to be a light of the aroma of Christ on my job today. Lord, help me to communicate the truth of the scriptures to one of my children today, one of my grandchildren today. Help me to unfold the gospel to my little three-year-old. Lord, help me to do these things today. And then as the day goes on, you see the these things happen in your life and your mouth opens and you invest in a little kid, you invest in a neighbor, you invest in a brother and sister in Christ and you serve them and somewhere in the process you just have joy. You just have joy. And you're like, I didn't even see it. Sometimes the light surprises. He's like, people without joy, I venture to say people who live without joy spend little to no time praying to be about the Father's business and receiving from Him to accomplish that business. How much time did you spend this week praying, saying, Lord, help me, enable me to serve my church for your glory? Well, I didn't pray that. Then you received nothing. Nothing. How much did you pray this week? Lord, help me to invest the gospel in this lost person. Well, I didn't pray that. You didn't receive nothing. And so you're lacking joy. It's a connection between asking and receiving and possessing this joy. Think about it. But your joy may be full. There seems to be a formula here in this text. Consistent obedience, John 15, 10 and 11. Remaining in Jesus, John 15, 4. Remaining in his love, John 15, 9. Remaining in his word, John 8, 31. There will, we will experience the fruit bearing in our prayers, John 15, 7 through 8. John 16, 24 compresses all of those together, what was taught. Abide in him, abide in his love, abide in his word. All of these things of obedience are connected with fullness of joy. I venture to say those that live without joy most likely live most of their lives in disobedience. If joy is lacking, examine your relationship with Jesus. Those who walk on the path he has given, they have this promise. You will have fullness of joy. But dear friend... If you're trying to find your joy in something other than Christ, you'll always be disappointed. The scriptures we must grasp to wrap this up, let me give you these four. They're, you already know them. John 15, 11, I just want to remind you. Jesus said, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. John 16, 24, where we're at, that your joy may be full. 
John 17, 13, I'm coming to you, these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. 1 John 1, 4, the Apostle John understood these things, and he says, we're going to write down everything he said so that your joy may be full. You mean to tell me that this book contains all I need to have a heart full of joy? Exactly. And so it's here, the words of Christ have been recorded, written in your own language, that you can read daily, and you can memorize, and you can meditate upon. And when you do, there's this assured promise that He will satisfy you with joy. And good news, the joy He satisfies you with is Himself. Praying and receiving causes for experience of joy. Relationally, joy is fully realized when we understand that he is a person. Perhaps, a couple of perhapses, perhaps you're looking to the world, could be, and what it offers to provide you with joy. What has it got? What's the world got? Money? Hobbies? Pornography? Alcohol? Drugs? What's it got? Think about it. It's all basic. It never changes. You go back from Genesis all the way through, it's all the same. It's all they have to offer. If you're looking for it to provide you with joy, it won't happen. I don't believe everything Aquinas said, but in your bulletin I had this quote. Aquinas said, Man cannot live without joy. Therefore, when he is deprived of true spiritual joys... It is necessary that he become addicted to carnal pleasures. If I can't find joy in Christ, I'll just get addicted to all these carnal pleasures and maybe they will produce. What a sad tragedy. All right, hopefully you got something out of this, but now to the rest of the story. You hear this stuff all the time. We close with this. Well, the reason this guy's like this is because of his daddy. And the reason this person's like this is because of their mama. And the reason these people are like this is because they grew up in a trailer, trailer trash. I say that because that's what I was called in school because I lived in a trailer. So, you know, they're trailer trash. And that's why they act this way. Well, those people act that way because they're Mexican. Those people act that way, you know, because they're Chinese. And those people are like this. And they put in all this things that we inherited from the generation before us. Well, they, they were orphaned. Their parents divorced. They, they don't even know who their parents are. All these stories, and we use those to justify immorality, to justify sinful living, to justify a reason I am the way I am. Look, you're, people are the way they are because of a depraved heart. But you remember Philip Doddridge. 19 siblings dead, five of his own kids dead, His mother dies, he's at 8. His father dies, he's at 12. His guardian squanders his entire inheritance. He's left with nothing and he's destitute. And a guy named Clark takes him in and raises him like a son. You can look at his history and say, man, this guy had it bad. I bet he turned out bad. When he was left and all of his money was squandered, this is... And at 13 years of age, later Philip wrote about this time in his life when all this came to be. This is what he said. 
God is an immortal Father. My soul rejoices in Him. He he hath hitherto helped me. He has provided for me. May it be my study to approve myself a more affectionate, grateful, dutiful child. My whole upbringing was a disaster. Oh, what a good father I have. He wrote 400 hymns at least. There's a book he wrote, The Rise and Progress of Religion in the Soul. Spurgeon said it's a must read by every Christian. But I'll also remind you of this. In our old hymn book, you can look there if you like. I'm not going to sing, I assure you. But a guy with that kind of upbringing and a right understanding of joy says this on page 574. What a great word from this guy who gets it. This is what he writes. Oh, happy day. 19 dead siblings, 5 dead children, abandoned, orphaned, my inheritance squandered. Oh, happy day. Do you see that? Oh, happy day. What's so happy about it? That fixed my choice on thee, my Savior and my God. Well, may this glowing heart rejoice and tell its raptures all abroad. I'm just so full of joy, I want the world to know. Tis done. Stanza two, it's done. Look, guys, the great transaction's done. I am my Lord's. And he is mine. He drew me and I followed on, rejoicing in the call divine. He reached down to the bottom and called me. Now rest my long divided heart. You see it there? My heart was divided, but now it can rest. Fixed on this blessful center, rest. Here have I found a nobler part Here, heavenly pleasures fill my breast. Stanza four. High heaven that hears the solemn vow, that vow renewed shall daily hear, till in life's latest hour I bow, age 48, I bless in death a bond so dear. I'm united with him. You remember? Joy, the eternal reality of peace with God through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. And bless in death a bond so near. Happy day, happy day. What's so happy about it? Jesus washed all my sins away. He taught me how to watch and pray. See the connection? Watch and pray and receive. Happy day. And live rejoicing every day. Every day, happy day, happy day. Jesus washed my sins away. Would somebody in the room get this? The doctor says, Travis, you have terminal cancer. you got three days to live. Praise the Lord. Hey, your kid just ran off with some loser. Praise the Lord. I'm not happy about that, but I have joy in my heart because my sins have been forgiven. Could we not understand that? Dear Christian, This is the reality that you ought to live in because Jesus spoke these things so that your joy 
would be full. That's why he said it. And so I pray that you would experience that on a daily basis. Brother Jeff, come lead us as we close in song.